Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. I do want to say thank you for your prayers for me and my health over the last week. I have been doing better. I've uh, significantly curbed my my diet and uh, been healthy the last week. I will be going to the doctor uh, next week, so you can continue to pray for me and we appreciate your prayers. Um, I also want to say thank you to the to the music team for leading the worship night on Friday night. It, it was it was an hour of really being ushered into the presence of a glorious and great God as the music team led us through the Apostles' Creed and as we sang songs to Him. And I just, I feel like I love God more and I have a deeper appreciation for the greatness and the love of God Himself because of our worship night, uh, Friday night. So thank you, worship team, for that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask you to help us behold Wonderful things in your word today. Help us to see the beauty of your holiness and the goodness of your righteousness. Help us to see the bigness of your love, the depth of your love, and the profoundness of your love that reaches into every part of our lives. Father, help us to see our sin clearly and to deal with it appropriately. Father, do not allow us, do not allow one person today, one believer to ignore You today. Don't allow us, Father, to depersonalize this message so that it is somehow out there for somebody else rather than in here for our souls. Father, we would ask one main thing today, that You would humble us to our knees to repent and raise us up to our feet to rejoice in Your greatness, in Your glory, and in Your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. I want to issue a a message at the very top of this message uh, today. Today's message will not be for the faint of heart. It it will not be for the seeker-friendly. It will not be a message that is going to tickle your ears. It will definitely not be a message that will land me an invitation to give a TED Talk later this fall. Today's message will not give you the warm and fuzzies all over. It will not give you chill bumps because you're so special. This is not a VeggieTales message. But it is God's message. It's God's Word to you. It's God's love for you. Today's message is what you need because nobody knows what you need more than God does. And nobody can help meet your need better than God will. And nothing is more powerful to meet that need than God's Word. And so please take God's revelation of His glory and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Last week we beheld the King in His glory. And we saw the victories of the King. David defeats 
enemy of Israel after enemy of Israel after enemy of Israel. We saw the the supervision, shepherding care of the king as he takes care of them one person by one person and organizes the kingdom in such a way that no person in the kingdom will be left behind. We saw the love of the king as he fulfills his covenant with David and goes and finds Mephibosheth and treats him as family. We saw the compassion of the king as David exercises mercy to his enemies and mercy to his servants and he cares for their needs, he cares for their feelings, he cares for their dignity. We saw the influence of the king where David makes such a big impact on his men that they now take on the same mindset as David on the field of battle, that we're doing this for the Lord and we're going to have courage in the power of the Lord. And we saw the supremacy of the king in that David just reigns over all. So what we said is that God immediately fulfills his promises, the promises of the Davidic covenant, By blessing David's royal reign in every single way. David's name is great. David's kingdom is great. David's power is great. The people of Israel are happy. Man, he is a great king. He is a godly king. He is a successful king. This is the king in his glory. But things aren't as always uh, quite as good as they seem, are they? seems that often, if not always, there are things going on underneath the surface that are happening inside the heart that you can't see with the naked eye. And that takes us to chapter 11. Today we will see not the king in his glory, but the king in his shame. And the first way we see the king in his shame is we see the transgressions of the king. The transgressions of the king. Beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Church, as I read and explain this passage, take note of the word sent. Take note of the word sent. When kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, a flat roof, overseeing all of Jerusalem, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, naked of course. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You know, one of your mighty men who's on the field of battle for you right now, fighting the Ammonites, the one who has been used by God to defeat many of our enemies. You know, the wife of him. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. 
He sent for her. He took her. She came to him. He lay with her, and he sent her out. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Give me a full report, please, Uriah. I really just need to know all that's going on because the messengers that come to me from the battlefield aren't sufficient enough. I need to call one of my mighty men off of the field of battle so that you can tell me all about it. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That is, Enjoy all the blessings of your home and enjoy intimacy with your wife and act like nobody's at war and act like you are now on reprieve. You have some days off. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Well, when they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David said to Uriah, and have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah, the mighty man, the man with integrity, said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab... And the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, King, as you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, I remain here today, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that David made Uriah drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it back by the hand of Uriah. David knows he can do this because obviously Uriah is a man of integrity. In the letter, David wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? And why did you go so near the wall? Well, if he says all that, 
then you shall say, <clears throat> your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and eh, now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And also, servant, make sure you encourage Joab. But when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We see the transgressions of the king in this, in this section. The first thing that we see is the passivity of the king in verse 1. What is passivity? If you look it up in the dictionary, you find that it is a lack of purposeful participation in an expected activity. It is the lack of a purposeful participation in an expected activity. David is expected to be out on the battlefield as the king, and yet he's not out there. He's let his victories go to his head, his success go to his head, his importance go to his head, his preeminence go to his head, so that now David is no longer the humble king, the gracious king, the great king. He now is puffed up with himself and with his pride. And he says, you know, I can basically do what I want to do. And what I want to do is not go out to war. I want to take it easy back here. He's being passive. He lacks perseverance purposeful participation in what is expected of him as the king. One observation, notice that we had been seeing David being called King David, King David, King David in these passages. Now, the narrator doesn't call him the king. He just calls him David. Why? Because he's not acting like a king. We see not only his passivity, we see his coveting. We see his covenant, he covets another man's wife. What is it a covenant? It's to desire wrongfully. To desire wrongfully without regard for other people's needs. Without regard for what's best for other people. It is looking upon something and saying, I want that. I don't care who it belongs to. I don't care who she belongs to. I want that. I must have that. I'm going to give that. I'm going to get it. And so what does he do? Not, not only does he covet, he schemes evilly. He has an evil scheming. You know, Micah 2.1 says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity. But that is precisely what David the king does. And not only that, at this point, we see him abusing his power as king. He uses his authority for personal and selfish gain. Church, do you think that if David is just a mere shepherd man and he lives on the outskirts of Jerusalem and he's just doing his business and, and, and caring about it and he sees this woman bathing, do you think that there's any shot that he sends one of his brothers or, or, or one of his friends and say, hey, hey, David wants you outside on the edge of town. He wants you to come to his house. Do you think Bathsheba would come? No, she wouldn't come. But it's the king who is asking her to come. It's the king who is sending her to come. And she's got no other choice. 
So David is abusing the authority that he has. And so what does he do? He commits adultery with this woman. He commits adultery with her. And then she goes back. He uses her. He doesn't love her. He lusted after her. He doesn't want a relationship with her. He wants to abuse her. He doesn't care anything about longevity. He cares everything about gaining something that he saw with his eyes and said, that will satisfy me today. And so he commits adultery and he sends her out and he treats her like a piece of trash. And then once she says what she says to him about a month or so later, he then begins this act of deceiving. To, to, to begin to try to mislead everyone, including Uriah, because he, he wants Uriah to go down to his house and to spend time with Bathsheba so that nobody will know otherwise. But Uriah is unwilling to fall into that trap. And so, so far we see that the king is passive. We see that the king covets. We see that he lusts, we, that he schemes evil, that he abuses his power, that he commits adultery. And now that he's deceiving, and ultimately David commits what? Murder. He commits murder. And not only does he commit murder, that is, that is tragic. That, that, that is traumatic. But he also commits disloyalty to his army, to his soldiers. There are other men in the battle who are fighting for Israel who die because David is murdering this man. And he takes pleasure in evil. After it all goes down and the word comes back to him, and, and Uriah says, but make sure you tell him that Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. David says, well, don't let this matter displease you. Church, the transgressions of the king are at least passivity, coveting, evil scheming, abuse of power, adultery, deceiving, murdering, disloyalty, and pleasure in evil. The king in his glory has become the king in his shame. And the question that we must ask is, how in the world does this happen? And, and what, what does that have any impact on my life and on my heart if David is a man after God's own heart? If David's heart beats in cadence with the glory of God and the praise of God, and here he is in his glory and in his success, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he's falling this far, this fast, this tragic? What does that say to us? And so what I want to do right now is I, I just want to give you some truths about sin that are absolutely important to your life. They're absolutely important to you. The first thing I want to say is that sin is always just around the corner. And it often starts with a subtle neglect of your God-given responsibilities. That's where sin starts. You guys know well now that as I look at my own God-given responsibilities, I am a worshiper, I am a husband, I am a father, I am a worker, I am an evangelist, and I am a friend. And, I, and it goes in that order, and worship governs over it all. But when I neglect my worship of God, I will begin to neglect my God-given responsibilities, and I will creep myself into sin so fast that it will be staring me in the face as I look in the mirror. Sin is what you do. Sin is what you do when you don't behold God. And when you don't bow down to God. And when you don't believe God. And when you don't obey God's call on your life. Sin is what you do when you don't embrace your God-given responsibilities. 
We have been seeing chapter after chapter after chapter where David is praying, where David is utilizing the ephod, where David is gathering the people around to seek the will of the Lord and to honor him and to go get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem so that they can make sacrifices and sing songs and enjoy the powerful presence of God through the ark. He is so fired up, but in this passage, we don't see him worshiping. We don't see him praying. We don't see him singing. We don't see him gathering with the people of God in order to celebrate the greatness of God. No. And that's why I say sin is what you do when you don't behold God, when you don't bow down to him, when you don't believe in him, and when you don't obey his calling on your life. Now, sin, if you want to look at at kind of a, a technical definition of what the word sin means, it means to miss the mark. A few of you young people were at our Thursday night huddle, and one of my friends, Randy Roberts, talked about how if you, if you take a bow and arrow and you aim it at a target, and, and you were shooting for the bullseye, he said, he said sin is like shooting it, and you're aiming at the bullseye, but you don't hit the bullseye. You don't hit the target. You miss the mark. Now, that was an accurate definition because that's technically what the words mean. But I want you to know this. It's more than that. It's more than that because when we sin and we're looking at the target and in the center of that target is the bullseye and the bullseye is the glory of God. The bullseye is the greatness of God. The bullseye is the honor of God. What we say is, no, No, I don't even think I'm going to aim at that target. I think I'm going to make my own target right over here. I'll draw the circle lines. I'll put the bullseye, and I'm going to put the glory of me, myself, and I. Make me a new target. I'm going to aim at that. And even if I miss it, I'm going to keep trying until I get it because I know that's really what I'm living for. That's what sin is. Sin blinds you to the glory of God and opens your eyes to the glory of me. Sin distracts you from the kingdom of God and focuses you on the kingdom of me. Sin pulls you away from serving God and convinces you to serve me. Sin builds on itself and spawns new sins and different sins. And I'll tell you this, church, sin escalates and multiplies when it goes unconfessed. Sin escalates and multiplies when it goes unconfessed. So the longer you go without confessing to God, the larger your sins will be, the deeper your sins will be, and the more grievous your sins will be. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but you know what? I really haven't confessed my sin in two, three weeks, four or five. I haven't really done any confession. My life is really not that. Well, you may not have murdered anybody. You may not have committed adultery. But that doesn't mean that your heart isn't far from the heartbeat of God himself. And that's possibly even more dangerous. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. I'll also say this about sin. Sin feels good for a season. It feels good for a season. But it ultimately strips you of your vitality. Of your dignity. And your joy. Sin thrills your flesh and then steals your joy and then kills your witness. It thrills your flesh, it steals your joy and kills your witness. How many people have I sat down in my office or at a coffee shop talking to me about the place in their life where they are now? 
And they are distraught, they are despondent, they are discouraged, they are, they are throwing their hands up in their air, they're even ready to die. Because what started out as fun, what started out as exciting, what started out as thrilling, what started out as mysterious, ends up into the depravity and the indignity of walking in the emptiness of your chosen ways for yourself rather than God's chosen ways for yourself. Sin overpromises and underdelivers every single time. It promises satisfaction, it delivers frustration. It promises freedom, it delivers bondage. It promises success, it delivers failure. Sin turns ambassadors of the king into servants of the enemy. I want to ask you to do me a favor right now. Would you close your eyes and you meditate right now on this reality? Your sin is not a little thing. It is a large thing. It is not meager. It is massive. It is not minor. It is major. It is not silly. It is serious. It is not trivial. It is traumatic. Sin is despising the Word of the Lord. It is utterly scorning the Lord. So right now, I want you to think about your sin. You're meditating right now on your sin. Not David's sin, your sin. Whatever that sin is, identify it. Identify your sin right now. Hold it before your heart. And I want you to see that it is an all-out assault on the goodness of God. It is an attack on the greatness of God. It is an offense to the holiness of God. It is a belittling of the beauty of God. It is an attempt to un-God God. That's your sin. And when you decide to sin, you are making the decision to spit in the face of Almighty God. You can open your eyes and you can look down at chapter 11 at the very last verse. Because the narrator says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it disgusted the Lord because it was evil. The church, I I want to give you an instruction. Do not treat your sin lightly. Do not treat your sin lightly. God is offended by it. God is disgusted by it. And He will respond accordingly. The second scene that we see in the king and his shame is the tribulation of the king. By tribulation, I mean the suffering, the agony, the difficulty, the tribulation of the king. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And the poor man brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock, one of his own herd, to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. David had been a shepherd. David knew what it was like to have sheep. David knew what it was like for a guy to have a big flock and a guy to only have one little lamb. David becomes all of a sudden righteously indignant. He becomes very religious at this moment. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives. Now this is the first time we've seen David use the word Lord in our passage. As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he, didn't, he did this thing and because he had no pity. You see, David believes this is an actual event. David believes this is someone in his kingdom. And David says, I'm the king. I stand in place of God. I'm going to give the edict of the king. This man really deserves to die. He's going to restore it fourfold. And Nathan says to David those infamous words, You are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David is confronted. David is rebuked. David has been, his, his discipline has been declared. And so what does he say? First words out of David's mouth after he hears the words, You are the man, I have sinned against the Lord. Not, 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 but, 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 but wait a minute, wait a minute, well, um, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, I, I, no, I did, no, 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 it's I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Well, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David knows his God. 
David knows the greatness of God and the grace of God. David knows the sovereignty of God and the mercy of God. And so he goes to God in prayer, in agonizing prayer on behalf of his child. And he says to himself, I do know that God is great. And I do know that what he declares is true. But I also know that he's merciful. I also know that he's gracious. And I know that he listens to the prayers of his people. And so David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, on the seventh day after David is praying and fasting and prostrating himself before God on behalf of this child, on the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him the child's dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. If this is representative of the tribulation of the king, what we see is the tribulation of the king and his guilt. All of this sending that happened in chapter 11, David sent, David sent, David sent, David sent, Bathsheba sent, Joab sent, David sent, David sent, and it's all about David doing what he wants to do for himself and for his own glory. And then in chapter 12, who does the sending? God does. God does the sending. And God says, enough with this. Enough with this sinning, enough with these transgressions, enough with this callousness, enough of this ignoring my glory, ignoring my holiness, ignoring my, my goodness. I'm going to pursue my king and he's going to come back to me because I'm going to confront him in, in his sin and I know that in the very heart of his hearts, he loves me, he worships me, and as I call to him, he will come to me because he belongs to me. So we see him in the tribulation of his guilt as he says, you're right, I am the man, I have sinned. We see the tribulation of the king in the discipline that is being divvied out. God is saying, man, I would have given whatever you needed. I would have bestowed on you whatever was necessary for you to be satisfied, for you to be joyed, and yet you go out and take it on your own. I will discipline you for this, David. I love you. I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about your goodness. I'm passionate about your joy. I will discipline you because I know what is best for you. And so then David, he agonizes in prayer and then he experiences the death of this child who he attached himself to emotionally already. This is the tribulation of the king. And it's at this point, church, where I want to give you some truths about God. I want to give you some truths about God so that we can understand really the thrust of this story today. The first thing I want to tell you about God is that God provides a way of escape when sin presents itself. God provides a way of escape when sin presents itself. David's servant said, um, King, is this, not, is this not Uriah the Hittite's wife? That was David's way of escape right there. Like, this is another man's wife. Not just another man's wife. This is one of your servant's wife. One of your best men's wives. 
Like, you really need to stop this and think about it before you go any further. God was providing a way of escape. That's why 1 Corinthians says, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but will provide a way of escape that you may endure it. God is faithful. He always provides a way out if we will listen to Him, if we will look for Him, if we will heed His will. The second truth is that God is sovereign, but He's not a puppet master. God is sovereign, but He's not a puppet master. Yes, God does what He wants, when He wants, how He wants, with whom He wants, absolutely. But He also gives people the freedom to make decisions and live their lives. And God hates sin and was displeased and disgusted with David's sin, but He gave David the freedom to make those decisions. Third truth about God is that He's a good Father who smiles at our obedience and frowns upon our sin. Children, I would even say this to you. Everything that you think and everything that you say and everything that you do either makes God smile or makes Him frown because your heart and your words and your actions matter to God. But God is a good Father and He takes great delight in our glad submission to His will and He feels great displeasure and disappointment in our rebellion against Him and our rejection of Him. I want to tell you something else about God. God is faithful to woo us away from sin by putting people in our life who will live out His will and speak His word. God is faithful to woo us away from our sin by putting people in our lives to live out His will and to speak His word to us in our lives. God did this through Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite has integrity. Uriah the Hittite has honor. And David, David sees Uriah. He beholds Uriah. Now he does not turn from his sin, but no doubt God provided Uriah's example for David to see. And so when David does not heed that, God continues to pursue after David and sends Nathan the prophet. Nathan is a friend of David's. Nathan is a confidant of David's. And he sends Nathan and says, you are the man because God is gracious and loving and, and, and merciful to send us what we need and who we need in our greatest time of need. God is so gracious. He is so gracious, church, to come to us and to confront us with our sin. I think that we have too narrow of a view of God's love for us. Yeah. Like we, we think that, okay, He's given us salvation. We know we have a home in heaven. Man, and He woke us up today. And, and we had a bed. And we had food to eat. And we've got a church to go to. And we've got wonderful things and wonderful people in our lives. Wow. God is good. And listen, I'm not making fun of that. I'm not making light of it. God is good because of every one of those things. But we don't think, wow, God is really loving to me because He is sending examples before me to raise my standard of living, to raise my life of worship, to, lay, to raise my, my spirit of generosity, to raise my spirit of sacrifice for the glory of God. He's sending me all these people to show me how life should be lived. Right. He's loving toward me 
Because He comes to me through the powerful word of a preached message or a sung song or a conversation at lunch to to guide me into deeper obedience and greater joy as I find my joy in Him rather than in the things of this world. That's the love of God. As see it as the love of God, bow down to God and say, God, you are so loving to expose me of my sin. You are so loving to show me the emptiness of my chosen ways and the fullness of the ways that you have for me. You are so loving, and you're even loving, God, to discipline me for my sin. Amen. I'll say that in just a moment. God, this is another truth of the God. God forgives the guilt of your sin. He does. He forgives it. He forgives the guilt of your sin. He erases the punishment of your sin. And He authorizes the discipline of your sin. He forgives the guilt of your sin. He erases the punishment of your sin. And then He authorizes the discipline of your sin. Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, then you're illegitimate children. You're not sons. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen to this, church. Listen to this. Discipline is grace. Discipline is grace because the pain of sin turns us to the pleasures of worship. Discipline is grace because the hardship of sin's consequences turns us to the happiness of joyful obedience to God. Discipline is grace because we actually feel the emptiness of of sin's results and it turns us to the fullness of loving God and living for God. David experienced God's discipline. So do we. We should thank Him for it and learn from it. I want to tell you something else about God. God doesn't put you in purgatory after you've sinned. God God doesn't put you in purgatory after you've sinned. If you repent, He forgives you. And He restores you and He blesses you in unique ways. That's exactly what He did for David and that's exactly what He did for us and that He he does for us. I want to tell you, church, do not put yourself in a self-imposed purgatory after you sin. Put yourself underneath the grace of God. Confess your sin to the grace of God and say, I cast myself on you, Lord. Forgive me of my sin and please help me move forward in freedom, in love, in joy because I know you've covered over my sins. And that's exactly what we see when it comes to to David and his life. Let's look finally at the triumph of the king. The triumph of the king begins in verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. Just look what he did. He got up. They've told him that his child's dead. So he gets up. He washes. He gets ceremonially clean. He anoints himself with oil. 
He changes his clothes. He goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. He then goes into his own house and when, and when, he, and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And his servants actually said to him, what is this thing that you've done? Like, you, you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but now that he's died, you've rose up and eaten food. And David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he won't return to me. And then David comforted his wife. So he's worshipped, and now he's comforting. David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent another message by Nathan, the prophet. And so he called his name Jedidiah. That is, beloved of the Lord, loved by the Lord, because the Lord sent this message. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. What the narrator is doing now is he's taking us from the very beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, where the king was supposed to be out fighting the battle against the Ammonites and seizing Rabbah. He's bringing us full circle now. This is the finalization of that battle. So Joab fought against the Ammonites and he took the royal city and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I've taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take it and it be called by my name. And so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head and the weight of it was a talon of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. I call it the triumph of the king because once the king repents and confesses his sin, and, and understands that God loves him, that God is going to discipline him, but God is not going to leave him or forsake him, what happens? He begins to worship God, and, and David experiences the triumph of worship, the triumph of fatherhood, the triumph of the blessing of God, and the triumph of victories yet again. And church, I just got to believe that this is a picture of our lives. We fall, we sin. God confronts us in our sin. We repent of our sin. And God doesn't make us wallow down in the pit. He doesn't make us grovel. He doesn't make us beg. He doesn't, he doesn't say, no, you're going you're to sit in purgatory for a couple of weeks or for a couple of months or if it's been really bad for a couple of years. No, God says, I'm going to allow you to triumph because it's not about you, it's about me. It's not about your obedience, it's about my grace. And I'm going to pour my grace on you so that you can feel my love, you can experience my grace, and you can walk in victory. Not because of what you've done but because of who I am that's the triumph of the king and so church if you ask me to summarize this passage I would say the glorious king becomes a shameful king by neglecting his responsibilities by fulfilling his lusts by abusing his power and disregarding the worship of God 
And so God sends Nathan the prophet to rebuke the king of his sin, to inform the king of his discipline, and to assure the king of his forgiveness. And the king then suffers through the sickness of his child. He worships through the aftermath of the child's death. And then he rejoices through the birth of Solomon and the triumph over the Ammonites. If you're taking notes right now, write this down. If you're having a difficult time focusing right now, Hone in, because this is what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to say to us today. If your heart beats for the glory of God, like if your heart is similar to David's, that you want God to be glorified in this world. If you want God to be praised above all things, if you want His supremacy to be witnessed, if you want His grace to be experienced, if you want God to be seen as King of kings and Lord of lords and supreme overall in His love and in the lavishness of His grace, if you want that, then God will passionately pursue you and skillfully shepherd you as much when you sin terribly as He does when you obey terrifically. God will passionately pursue you and skillfully shepherd you as much as when you sin terribly as when you obey terrifically. You see, He will not let you go. He will not let you go. God is the hound of heaven. And He will chase you to the utter ends of the earth. And He will confront you with your unbelief. And He will show you the emptiness of it. And He will say, come to Me and experience My fullness and experience My grace and experience My glory. Because if you keep chasing that rabbit that you're chasing, it will end in nothing but misery, nothing but emptiness, nothing but foolishness, and you will miss out on Me building My kingdom. All right, so I want to tell you some things to do. I have taken a book, a page out of the book of uh, the Puritans. If you ever read the Puritans and they applied their sermons, they talked about the application of the head, the application of the heart, and the application of the hands. The head, the heart, and the hands. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of take head, heart, hands, head, heart, hands head, heart, hands, and that'll be it. First thing I want you to do is know that God hates your sin. That's your head knowledge. Know, Know that God hates your sin. But in your heart, I want you to feel the atrocity of your sin. Like if you're if you're living in adultery if you're living in fulfilling the lust of your flesh, if you're living in a state of accusing people and slandering people and maligning people, if you're living in the plotting of sin against people, like you're just doing, you're doing bad things to people just because you can. Like you're a kid and you just like hitting people over the head. Or or you're a child and you just like getting others in trouble. Like you need to feel the atrocity of that, child. You need to realize that that is evil and God hates it. And if you're 
And if you're an adult and you just feel like if you just tinker and dabble in a little bit of immorality and a little bit of, of, of sexual sin, and then you just come back and you stay in that, you just need to understand that that is atrocious and God hates it. Feel the atrocity of it. But then what should you do? You should repent of your sin. You should do that today. Know that God hates it. Feel the atrocity of it. And you need to repent today. We're going to sing, and we're going to sing a number of songs. And you need to come today, and you need to lay your sin before God, and you need to say, I am wrong. I have sinned before the Lord. Please forgive me. Head, heart, hands, I want to say, no God loves your soul. Now, He hates your sin, but He loves your soul. He loves your soul so much that right now He's pursuing you. Right now He's coming after you. His Word is being ushered right into your heart and He's saying, I love you so much, I'm unwilling to let you stay in the place you're at. Know God loves your soul and feel at this moment the grace of God. Feel the reality that God says, I'm not going to let you alone. I'm not going to let you alone. I am the hound of heaven. I'm coming to earth and I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to fix you and I'm going to help you walk in victory. Run to the cross. That would be the hands part of this. Run to the cross. Because forgiveness does not happen on a whim. Forgiveness doesn't happen by sweeping your sins underneath a rug. Forgiveness happens by taking your sins and putting them up on the cross where Jesus pays the penalty for them. Finally, head, heart, hands. I want to say no, God will hunt you down. He will hunt you down. He will hunt you down. And when He does, feel the love of God. Feel the love of God. And rest, this would be the hands, rest in the shepherd's arms. Know that God will hunt you down. You're the one that got away. You're the 99, the other 99 are in the flock, the one that got away. You're about to go over the edge because you are a foolish sheep. You, 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 you are an ignorant sheep. You can't see the danger that it's about to head. You're going to go over the cliff and all of a sudden the hound of heaven comes after you and swoops you up and puts you in his arms and walks you back to the flock and puts you in there. You need to feel the shepherding love of your father and say, thank you, God, you love me so much church so far we have seen two kings in their glory Saul and David we have seen two kings in their shame Saul and David we have seen one king in Saul who was confronted by the word of God and says you're the man and King Saul says, no, 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 no. I have obeyed the Lord. I have done what God told me to do. I have been, been gladly submissive. You're wrong, Samuel. And then we saw David when he's confronted and says, you're the man. And he says, I have sinned before the Lord. This is what I want to say, church. Don't assume that you're David. Because if you excuse your sin, if you justify your sin, if you apologize for your sin, if you, if you give reasons why your sin was reasonable, 
You are more like Saul than you are like David. And Saul experienced the wrath of God while David experienced the grace of God. So the question today is, is are you going to be a Saul? Are you going to be a David? Are you going to say, I've sinned? Or are you going to say, I've, 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 I've done a good job? If you don't mind, bow your head. Church, I always ask the question, how does it point us to Christ? And church, I want you to know that this passage points us to Christ by showing us that we need a better king than David. Man, last week we got all excited because the narrator told us about the king and his glory. Please bow right now and meditate. Just meditate right now because last week we saw the king in his glory. We were impressed with his victories. We were inspired by his leadership. We were moved by his love. We were surprised by his compassion. We were motivated by his influence. We were in awe of his supremacy and we were ready to crown him king of kings. Were we not? And now this week we are disappointed by his passivity, offended by his lust, grieved by his adultery, and shocked by his murder. We're like, man, we love David. We're glad he repented. We're excited God forgave him, but he showed us that, that David is not trustworthy. I recently had a friend tell me eye to eye. He said, Ryan, you know the quality of a man when you can trust him with your life, trust him with your wife, and trust him with your money. Church, we couldn't trust David with our life. Ask Uriah. We couldn't trust him with our wife. Ask Uriah. We couldn't trust him with our money. Ask the kingdom. But we can trust King Jesus. We can run to King Jesus. Because we know he's trustworthy. We know he's faithful. We know he has integrity. And we know that he loves us because of what he's done for us. Let's run to the King right now with our sin. Let's run to Him in repentance. Let's run to Him and rest in what He's done for us. And let's cast ourselves upon the grace of God in King Jesus because He is King.